all you movie junkies and cinephiles, it's time for the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. And welcome, one and all, to episode 288 of the SLS Cast. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this is the stony, tumbling asteroid episode of the SLS Cast because it turns out that there just happens to be a stony, tumbling asteroid and slow rotator from the intermediate asteroid belt, approximately 32 kilometers in diameter. This particular asteroid is known as 288 Glocky. With that wonderful little bit of asteroid knowledge, I, of course, am Matt. And coming to us all the way from sunny California would be our resident Sony employee, Glocky Tim. (laughs) An asteroid named Glocky. That's right. You think they would have spruced it up a bit, you know? Glockafina. So uh, it says here... Glockanus. That it was discovered on the 20th of February in 1890 by Robert Luther at Dusseldorf Bilk Observatory in Germany. It was uh, the last of his asteroid discoveries. It is named after Krusa, known as Glaus or Glocki, a daughter of Creon, a king of Corinth in Greek mythology. Hmm. There you go. <laughs> you would think that would make it clear, but it doesn't. <laughs> yeah, what if the Loch Ness monster was called Glocki? Instead of Nessie, do you think it would have the as much appeal as the cute and cuddly Nessie name? Probably not. Well, this episode is going off with a bang, I think, so far. Yeah! Three minutes in, we're making no sense. Yeah, well then, how about we just start making some sense? You want to go ahead and just, you know, you're, you're, you know, I'm alive and so are you, right? Is that good, Nick? And we're happy and everything's going well for the most yeah, part. Yeah, I'm pooping regularly and efficiently. Everything seems to be coming out all right because everybody poops. All right. Well, then, uh, yeah. So we'll just go ahead and jump right into our bonus segment, which, as you know, this week is... Furry And on this edition of Three Squared, we are again going to be covering our picks for movies that were never made. Yes, movies that we had wanted to see, we were looking forward to see, uh, to seeing, and then they've just never been made. And most likely, never will be made. So, I'm going to go ahead and kick off. Now, two of my picks, two of my picks... Um, I'm just going to throw this out there. I had an honorable mention for a confederacy of dunces. Um, but I, you know, I, I'm just going to kind of leave it floating in the ether as an honorable mention. My actual picks, two of them are movies that we've actually discussed in depth on the show because we've talked about documentaries. We actually covered their respective documentaries, but it's still, doesn't mean that these aren't movies that I want, that I, that I still wouldn't have wanted to see. And quite frankly, I would still see them if someone had the courage to make them and I I would still see them even though these documentaries proved why they never saw the light of day. So I'm um, pulling um I'm pulling uh, uh these 
these recaps here. These are just going to be very quick recaps, and I'm pulling them from uh, IndieWire.com, respectively, and, and uh, IndieWire and DenOfGeek.com, respectively. So, first up, Tim Burton's Superman Lives as maybe the most famous aborted superhero reboot in history. This is according to the IndieWire.com article. Uh, let's see here. Make sure I can reference this correctly. 25 Greatest Movies Never Made. This comes from the playlist staff. Uh, now I've lost it again. Oh, there we go. Okay. Uh, let's see here. So, way back in 1996, work began on a new Superman movie that was inspired in part by the caped hero's return to the cultural consciousness following the death of Superman comic book storyline. Kevin Smith, a noted comic book enthusiast and world-class nerd, was hired to write the screenplay, a process hilariously detailed in one of his lecture tours, in part because of the scene in Mallrats when characters discuss a kryptonite condom. Throwing away most of an earlier draft of the screenplay entitled Superman Reborn and written by Jonathan Lemkin, Smith set about creating a deeply soulful and highly reverential take on the hero. After Smith submitted his second draft, the studio hired Tim Burton as a director on Smith's suggestion. Warner Brothers, on their part, were keen on seeing what the filmmaker's take on the material would be, especially after the wild success of the original Batman. Burton, still wounded by the catastrophic failure of Mars' attacks, wanted a surefire hit. Nicolas Cage, another super nerd and comic book freak, signed on to play the title role. Now they ask what happened. They says everything that could go wrong did. Wesley Strick, who had worked on Batman Returns for Burton, was brought on and began lobotomizing Smith's script. Tests went on with Cage encased in a suit embroidered with pulsating colored lights, and shooting locations were picked out in Pittsburgh. But the script never came together. Strick's drafts seemed nonsensical and, overly, and overtly violent, with Brainiac and Lex Luthor eventually becoming a single entity dubbed Lexiac in the script. Subsequent drafts by Dan Gilroy turned off Burton, and mere months before the movie was slated to hit theaters in time for the character's 60th anniversary, the movie was shelved. Burton went off to do Sleepy Hollow, Cage departed, and yet work on the screenplay, seemingly in the vacuum of space, continued with two more hugely expensive original drafts, one by William Wisher and the other by Paula Antensio, later submitted to Warner Brothers and subsequently ignored. Could it ever get made, they asked. The short answer is no. The main problem with Superman Lives is that it was a cool concept whose script seemed to never cohere into something that could be seen as a singularly feasible goal. And with Warner Brothers now positioning Superman as a character who not only anchors his own franchise but serves as the sun with which the rest of the DC universe, cinematic universe will orbit, it seems unlikely that they would put so much time and effort into a project that was, by all accounts, so hopelessly strange and rudderless. Shifting gears over to the Den of Geek article uh, called 36 Major Blockbusters and Why They Were ne Why They Never Got Made by Simon Brew, Mike Sacchini, and Ryan Lamble. Uh, we go over to Batman Year One. And they write, History is positively littered with the empty capes and cowls of unmade Batman movies. Now there's a certain sameness to Batflicks. flicks, regardless of the overall tone or the level of realism involved. But Batman Year One would have been unique. You see, the Batman franchise was floundering in 2001. Fresh off the drubbing of Batman and Robin and the failure to launch of Batman 5, Batman Triumphant of Warner Brothers was probably trying to find the right word for a quote reboot unquote and a fresh start was needed. Enter Frank Miller, writer of acclaimed comics like The Dark Knight Returns and Batman Year One and who had tried his hand at Hollywood with a draft of RoboCop 2. 
Miller brought some questionable flourishes you don't want to know to the Bat mythology, which is amusing considering he was touted for having written the most acclaimed Batman origin story of all time, the story that this film shares its very title with. The presence of Darren Aronofsky makes this one seem a little more palatable, but Warner Brothers got distracted, wandered off into a proposed Batman Beyond live-action film, and a stalled Bruce Wayne TV series, which morphed into Smallville, <clears throat> and which we'll try not to blame for Gotham, they write, <laughs> before returning to the origin story concept for Batman Begins, which is assuredly better than anything else that was on the menu. So there you go. Uh, finally, here we have... Jorodowski's Dune. Now, this is again from the Den of Geek article. They write, and and of course, there's an actual, uh, uh, oh my goodness, a documentary called Jodorowsky's Dune. So you should totally check that out if you haven't, and you can always check it out on our show because we talked about it. It says here, Alejandro Jodorowsky set out to make a version of Dune that would give viewers the experience of being under the influence of psychedelics without actually having to consume any questionable substances. Pre-production was well underway with famed comic artist Mobius crafting a 1,200-page book of beautifully illustrated storyboards with a cast that would have included Mick Jagger, Orson Welles, and Salvador Dali, designs by H.R. Geiger, and visual effects by Dan O'Bannon. There's no doubt that it would have been the proverbial asses in proverbial seats. As you might imagine when we're talking about psychedelics and 1,200 pages of storyboards by a visionary comic book artist, ambition and lack of adequate financing... The spice must flow, after all. Ultimately killed Dune. The film rights were snapped up by Dino De, uh, Dino De Laurentiis in 1982, which he then used to produce the inescapable David Lynch version, which Jarodowski gleefully describes as, quote, terrible, end quote. Still, this is one of those cases where perhaps the dream of what we could have had is better than what we actually got. If nothing else, Frank Pavich's documentary on the subject, Jodorowsky's Dune, is a masterpiece on its own, and it is essential viewing for any fan of science fiction, movies in general, science fiction movies in particular, psychotropic drugs, or watching science fiction movies while under the influence of psychotropic drugs. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is where I am at in terms of the uh movies that were never made look i really and truly would have loved to have seen superman lives um and and that's not to say that there aren't certain aspects of man of steel that i like or don't like or anything else about what's going on with the dc cinematic universe um i would still i mean i i grew up and 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 lived during the time period of the comic books for these things happening when this was at a time when I was still in comic books when I was a teenager and remembering all these things and, and experiencing my early twenties, you know, all of them, the movie rumors and all that kind of stuff. And, and especially with the advent of the internet and everything. Um, so these were movies that I really would have loved to have seen. Uh, Batman year one, again, just stuff like, wow, I love Frank Miller. I mean, back when I was in high school, my old speech and debate days, I was doing, uh, that we, you, you, they had a, a special thing where you could adapt a comic book and turn it into a two person speech. And so I actually did that using Frank Miller stuff from back in the day. I am a huge fan. And so of him and of that work and to think of Batman year one actually happening would have been fantastic. And then, of course, like I said, we covered Jodorowsky's Dune. Uh, back on the show way back when. And just to think about what that movie could have been 
And yes, maybe daydreaming about what it could have been would have been all right. But I, I don't know. I just think that that version of Dune would have been so much more faithful than what we got. And I still, as I said, I would love to see any one of these movies if they got made. And uh, yeah, so my picks again, Superman Lives, Batman Year One, and Dune, but specifically Jodorowsky's Dune. What do you got there, Tim? Alrighty, well, I'm going to be following kind of sort of the same formula that Matt led off with. I have a number of articles here to assist with my choices, and I'm going to add a little game. There's one that I would have liked to have seen get made. There's one that I kind of, I mean, wouldn't have minded a sequel with all the people who made the first one behind it because I think it still might have worked. And then there is one that I think absolutely would have fallen flat on its face and would have done a huge injustice to the first film. So by the end of this, and you can play at home, but you, Matthew, I want you to please tell me which films I am aligned with in regards to those three categories. Now, First off, allow me, via whorefreaknews.com, tell you about E.T. Part 2, Nocturnal Fears. Yes, via whorefreaknews.com, Nocturnal Fears, the horrifying E.T. sequel that almost was, written by Joshua Millikan from January 2nd of last year. It says this, Stories about a proposed sequel to Steven Spielberg's 1982 classic E.T. are the stuff of internet lore. It's not the idea of a second installment or even a franchise is outlandish. It's that, by all accounts, E.T. 2 would have been a horror movie. Unbelievable? Nocturnal Fears, which sounds like the title of an anti-masturbation propaganda film, was worked into a nine-page treatment by original E.T. scribe Melissa Matheson. It reads like a twisted fan fiction composed by a sadist. When Elliot, played by Henry Thomas, notices lights in the forest, he and his siblings rush into the darkness expecting to find their winky friend for a second visit. Instead, they are surrounded by a clan of fish-belly-white carnivores, ghoulies, I should say, from space. Elliot and crew are subjected to mental and physical torture aboard an evil mothership. Torture? That's right. Here's a bit of the treatment's most chilling content. When the children regain their senses, they are surrounded by the evil alien creatures who are hiding in the forest. The creatures are carrying some kind of dagger. Elliot advances in a friendly gesture, but barely escapes being bitten, or even killed, by the alien's razor-sharp teeth. Several of the aliens bare their fangs from time to time to show they mean business. Corell orders that the children be brought aboard. Reluctantly, Elliot and his friends follow. In the hours that follow, Elliot and his companions are questioned extensively, but the aliens will not accept the truth in their responses. While one child is interrogated, another is being examined. Gertie is crying and calling for Mary and E.T. for help. The others endure as their war gaming experience have taught them. This isn't just a brief moment of the proposed E.T. sequel, this is the entire second act. The description of Gertie, played in the original by young Drew Barrymore screaming for her mommy, as well as additional descriptions of Elliot being tormented at length, are gut-wrenching. 
Of course, it ends on a positive note. E.T. returns like an action hero and saves the day. Seriously. And the treatment continues. Suddenly, we hear a strange, resonating hum throughout the ship. Yet, it is not coming from within the ship. All the evil aliens freeze. A hatch opens to reveal E.T. with his glowing finger raised and his heart light pulsating. End of treatment. The other thing missing is an Uzi or a flamethrower. For a good laugh or to shake your head at the absurdity of it all, you can actually read the entire treatment via a link posted on this Horror Freak News website in the article Nocturnal Fears, the horrifying E.T. sequel that almost was. Yes, that is one of my choices for flicks that never happened. Next up, Gladiator Part 2, or Christ Killer, which was the title of Nick Cave's script. Yes, lead singer and lead lyricist and composer, I guess, of Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds. Via this is insider.com. It says that for Gladiator 2 by Ridley Scott, what is it? The movie would have been a bonkers sequel of Gladiator, the 2000 Sands and Sandal epic starring Russell Crowe. Crowe's character dies at the end of the first movie, but Nick Cave's script for the sequel would have reincarnated Maximus into an immortal warrior who would kill Jesus and been involved with various conflicts from the Roman era to the Vietnam War. The name of the film? Christ Killer. What happened? It was too metal for movie studios to make. Chances it'll happen? Probably not. And via ScreenRant.com, how Ridley Scott was going to bring Maximus back in Gladiator 2. Uh, and this one here is written by Dan Zinsky. Ridley Scott has revealed how he would bring Maximus back from the dead in a sequel to Gladiator. In the director's Oscar-winning epic, Russell Crowe's Brave... Russell Crowe's brave General Maximus survives his betrayal and attempted murder at the hands of Joaquin Phoenix's scheming Commodus and is metaphorically resurrected as a gladiatorial warrior who rises to become even more popular than the Emperor. Maximus goes on to seek revenge against Commodus and ultimately dies in the arena, but not before triumphing over the man who killed his family and destroyed his life. Maximus's death at the end of Gladiator would seem to have closed the door on the possibility of a sequel, and indeed, to this day, there's still no Gladiator 2. In fact, though Ridley Scott has no plans to make a sequel to Gladiator, he does have thoughts about how Maximus could be literally resurrected for a second film. Strangely enough, there is already a script for a Gladiator sequel out there in the world. About 10 years ago, Nick Cave, the musician, decided he would have a go at penning the script, yada yada yada. Ridley Scott spoke about Cave's script in a recent interview with Me.Movies and talked about how it would have solved the problem of bringing Russell Crowe back from the dead. And he said, quote, You know, I can bring him back. I know how to bring him back. I talked to Crowe into how I bring him back. I use the body of a dying warrior as a portal to bring somebody back. In Cave's script, the absolutely dead Maximus bounces around the afterlife for a while, meeting various Roman gods and such. It bears noting that the last time Scott dealt with gods, it didn't go so well, before finally getting his chance to return to the real world when his rise from the body of a slain Christian martyr, the portal referred to by Scott, Maximus then discovers that Lucius, the son of his ex-lover Lucia, played by Connie Nilsson in the original Gladiator, has been going around massacring Christians at an alarming rate. 
Maximus hooks up with a group of embattled Christians and after initially trying to convince them not to fight, winds up helping them form an army. Along the way, Maximus discovers that his son, Marius, who was supposed to have died in the first film, is actually alive and now a Christian. Maximus also reconnects with Dijimon Hunso's character, Juba. The story builds to a pair of insane action sequences, one involving a flooded gladiatorial arena where men on ships fight alligators, the other a final battle sequence where Lucius kills Juba, then gets hacked to shreds by Maximus and finally killed by an arrow from Marius. Uh, Ridley Scott then said that the script described above is, quote, on a shelf at DreamWorks somewhere, and it will almost certainly remain on that shelf, largely because, in Scott's words, Russell Crowe is, quote, getting on a bit now, end quote. Yes, and so my second pick is Gladiator 2, a.k.a. Christ Killer. I'm smelling excellent box office results from that film right there. If you want to read more about it, there is an interesting Dangerous Minds article uh, where you can actually read the Gladiator 2 script that Nick Cave wrote. Uh, and that article is from back in 2013. Finally, finally, finally. From GeekTyrant.com. Why Arnold Schwarzenegger's epic film project Crusade Died. Yes, my number three flick, The Crusades. And it says this, back in the day, Arnold Schwarzenegger was about to make an epic project called Crusade. The movie was going to be directed by Total Recall director Paul Verhoeven, and it was described as being a Middle Ages epic with a mix of Spartacus and Conan. In the most recent issue of Empire magazine, and this article was published on uh, six years ago, yes, six years ago, so... Not now a most recent issue of Empire Magazine, which focused on Schwarzenegger's comeback. They explained that the movie didn't shy, quote, away from the anti-Semitism and anti-Arabian sentiments of the Crusades in question. It was going to be full-on Frank Vintage Verhoeven with sets already built in Spain and cast ready to roll, including Robert Duvall, Jennifer Connelly, John Turturro, and Christopher McDonald, before it all disappeared into a lick of development hellfire, end quote. So what in the hell happened to this project? Why didn't it ever get made? Schwarzenegger explained that Verhoeven had a breakdown in the middle of a meeting that killed it. Here's the story as described by the actor, saying, quote, It was all written and ready to go, but then Paul started going crazy. We had the final meeting with the studio, and we were all sitting at his boardroom table. They said, quote, so the, they said, so the budget is $100 million. That's a lot of money. What kind of guarantees do you have that we will get it for 100 and it won't go up to 130? He, Verhoeven says, what do you mean guarantees? There's no such thing as guarantees. Guarantees don't happen. If anyone promises you guarantees, they're lying. We don't even know that if you want out of the building here, you won't get hit by a truck. There's no guarantee that we're going to make it till tomorrow. I cannot have control over God. I don't even believe in God. Why am I talking about God? But someone, nature, could just rain for three months and then what do we do? How can I give you a guarantee? This is ludicrous. Schwarzenegger goes on to say, I kept kicking him under the table and trying to tell him to shut up while we're ahead, but he just wouldn't. And that was it. That was the end of that movie. Paul always tried to be honest, but you can be a little bit selective about when to be honest and when to just move on with the project. It was a shame, end quote. Uh, if you want to learn more about this, 
There is also another article from One Room with the View, Best Films Never Made, number 18, Paul Verhoeven's Crusade. And it goes on to talk about this studio, this company. Let me see if I can find it really quick. Carolco was the company that was trying to make the movie. Um, They ended up making Cutthroat Island. So Carolco, they ended up financing, they wanted to go and finance Flashdance. And they also wanted to finance Cutthroat Island. Both movies tanked financially and critically. Basically, their company went bankrupt. That's one way of looking at it, or Paul Verhoeven just screwed himself over. It sounded like the movie studio really wanted to make this other movie, and Paul Verhoeven just put that final nail in the coffin to make them go, you know what, making this Crusades movie... We'll probably make make some profit off of it, but Flashdance or Cutthroat Island, man, these movies are going to be big films. And of course, <laughs> they were not. <laughs> but don't forget, their last gasp was Showgirls. <laughs> or by Flashdance, I meant Showgirls. <laughs> so Matthew, what do you think? What What is the movie that should have been made that probably would have been great? And what's the movie that should not have been made? And what's the movie that would have been okay or had potential? A uh, movie that should not have been made, Christ Killer. Movie that might have been somewhat okay, Night Skies slash ET2. And I'm sorry, Christ Nocturnal Killer slash Fears. Gladiator 2. Oh, I had it as Night Skies, but um, sure, we can call it Nocturnal, whatever you want to call it. What is Again, it different articles I apparently say different things. <laughs> Well, we'll go with yours because you had the you, you article for your thing. What what was it called? Nocturnal? What? Fears. I prefer Night Skies myself. All right. So yeah. So E. T. Two would have been probably the one that would have been okay. I think the one that actually would have been amazing would have been Crusade. That should have been made. That is exactly what I would have said myself. I think Crusades would have been fucking fun as shit because it's Paul Verhoeven in his prime. Arnold Schwarzenegger, still pretty much in his prime in the mid nineties. Oh yeah. And it would have been it would have been fun as hell. Yeah, it might it might have been politically incorrect and it would have worked just fine. People would not have cared as much. You can't make that movie like that now. It can't be fun. It has to be by the books, it has to be a long drawn out epic. It just can't be fun over the top Arnold Schwarzenegger action, which is what I miss, and that would have been fantastic. ET two Nocturnal Fears, Night Skies, whatever. I think Spielberg, whoever would have taken that treatment and done something exciting with it, it would have been something different. I think it would have had potential because on paper, the first treatment of the original E.T. sounded just as ridiculous. But Gladiator 2 would have completely undermined the emotion, you know, the experience of the original Gladiator When I watched the first Gladiator, I didn't think of magic. (laughs) You know, I didn't think of actual resurrection. I just thought this guy really wanted to be reunited with his family. And he did it in the most noble, depressing way possible. And there's no way he's going to come back from that. My three flicks that never happened. E.T. 2, Nocturnal Fears, Gladiator 2, or Christ Killer. And then finally, The Crusades. Righteous. All right, well, that is going to do uh, do it for our three squared here. Next week, we're going to jump back into the old news. And uh, without further ado, I guess it's time for some movies. What do you say, sir? Let's do it. Here we go, folks. It's 
So we've got three movies this week. We've got 2017's The Ritual. We've got uh, 12th Man, uh, 2018, or I guess 2017 version, whatever. I mean, you know, we're, we're watching it now. Technically, I guess it's 2017. So, and then of course, Roxanne, Roxanne. So, um, what uh, what do you want to what do you want to talk about, sir? Where do you want to go? Ooh, why don't we go from the personally? I thought all these movies were good. However. I think a good rating system for this one would be least strongest to strongest. So why mm. don't we go for the least strongest? I personally say the ritual. Well, sure. That works for now. <laughs> All mine are middling. Okay. I'm not going to tell you which is which, but I've got two of them at three and a quarter and one of them at three and a half. So I think that we're in agreement here because they're, you know, good movies, likable movies, but, uh, you know, yeah, so we'll see. We'll see where we go. So you're, you're starting here with the ritual. Uh, 2017 British horror film directed by David Bruckner and written by Joe Barton. Well, let's check it out. Rob would have loved this place. He's a good man. The best of us. You know, they have walking trails in England. Pubs. Come on, man, where's your soul? Oh, oh, it's twisted. It's twisted. All right, yep. Oh, easy, oh. easy. Look, we go southwest through here. We cut the journey in half. Well, through the forest. Yeah, why not? We should have gone to Vegas. Oh, you'd have found something to fall over in Vegas too, mate. Now, is it me, or is it really quiet in here? been gutted could be hunters out here bait possibly or it's the bit they don't show you in the nature documentary it's a warning we shouldn't be here where the hell are we huts we should pitch the tents this is ridiculous man luke you're getting soaked Did you hear that no i didn't hear anything come on talk about it then or not it was a nightmare film well, what happened to you then we got spooked and we had bad dreams all right i woke up last night look, look at this nothing has done that to you you've done it to yourself why do you have to deny everything because like i do not value your judgment we need to be working together man All right, so the movie uh, stars Rafe Spall, Arsher Ali, Robert James Collier, and Sam Troughton. Uh, it's just some guys who, um, you know, some friends who are meeting up for adventures. Not quite as goofy as back in City Slickers, you know, but um, still kind of the same concept. They just want to be friends and, and have fun together and have some adventures together as they age and and just kind of maintain the bonds of friendship when someone gets hurt and they decide to, on a hike, and they decide to cut through this forest uh, to save some time. And, and, and then when they end up in the forest, um, apparently the Blair Witch Project happens. So, um, not really Blair Witch Project, but you get where I'm going. <laughs> Shenanigans ensue. All right, so here's here's where I'm at on this movie. 
I thought that the movie was definitely well acted and for the most part well paced. I think the biggest part for me is probably if you're going to break the film into thirds, right? We've got the first third of the film, which is the setup and the execution. We've got the second uh, third of the film, which is the uh, which is basically all the action leading up to our, our climax. And then the third part of the film is the climax through the uh, through the denouement. Um, roll credits. Now, for me, I think that the movie book ends well, but it's that second third that kind of gets, and, and it's not that it's, it's not, like I said, the pacing is good. I just felt like for the most part in the middle, they're trying too hard. And it, to me, in that aspect, it was slightly reminiscent of Blair Witch Project. That guy's alone in the middle of the woods. They get sidetracked and lost. Bad things start happening to them. They're creeped out. They don't understand. There's yet there's there's an unseen kind of monster or force or spookadelic thing. I think what would have been good to see is instead of them turning on each other, because like like most horror films do, in that vein, I I felt like it would have been good for them to actually have been unshakably together, so that when you see what happens in the final third of the film when you actually get your climax and you get to kind of get the reveal of what's really happening here, um, it, it helps you to really make more sense of, of the bonding that you got to take advantage of from the first third of the film that doesn't really fall apart, but I think would have led to something better for the last third of the film. Um, I, I do give this one a three and a quarter. I, I like the movie, but I just don't think that the that the middle third of the movie was uh, as strong as it could have been. That's what I got there. Tim, wh- where are you at that, sir? I think this one is a solid 3.5 out of 5. I thoroughly enjoyed it for the most part. It does have your typical annoying tropes. And the most annoying one, I think, is, of course... The annoying character who yells and whines, bitches and moans so loudly. You know he's constantly putting the group in danger. And that was frustrating. Especially with what that is competing against is entertaining. I like that the movie isn't trying to fool you. Once you know that something bigger is at play and they're not just seeing things, the movie really, I think, takes off once you realize that they're not hallucinating they're not seeing things that there is in fact something in the woods and therefore as an audience member you just keep wondering well what is it why is it there well why are they coming across like these lit up paths you know what's creating that and once you figure out the meaning behind all of this stuff it's kind of underwhelming because when you think of Deliverance from the 70s, even in the, in, the, in the early 90s when I first watched Deliverance, I was freaked out because it's like, well, you know, it's the backwoods. We don't have cell phones. We don't have text messaging. There's no GPS devices that hikers use when you go on these crazy backpacking tours that pings out your GPS location in case you get lost so people can find you. You didn't really have that back then. So the idea of running into backwoods hillbillies... You know, you never know. It could happen. So these guys running into these same type of folk now was kind of a stretch. And 
ultimately a mix with the tropes in that aspect of the story we land on 3.5 out of 5. I thought the movie was shot wonderfully. I thought it was a competent film. I thought the performances were just fine. The creature was pretty horrifying, especially the first time or two where you see its eyes. The movie has pretty damn good atmosphere, and it definitely brings you into the story. Not necessarily constantly, because it's easy to kind of get lost in the film, but you are definitely aware of its faults, both trope-like and story-wise. 3.5 out of 5, it's on Netflix. I think it's worth checking out if you're a fan of horror and you just want to be entertained for 90 minutes. All right, so where do you want to turn from there, sir? How about Roxanne, Roxanne? Aha! You have found my three-and-a-half-star movie, sir. Oh. Yeah, so let, let, let's see what we got here. Roxanne, Roxanne. I hear you out here, Shantae. What time does this key lock my door? You want to be out there playing with all them hoes? And you keep your ass out there, but stop knocking on my goddamn door. to be happy or something you wanted to be miserable just like you you a nasty motherfucker out there in the world thinking you grown what the hell happened to you Shante? listen i know the streets are calling but you must find a way to rise above it you don't need him shawnee you got this without him must do this A 2017 American drama film written and directed by Michael Larnell. It stars Shante Adams, uh, Mahershaya Ali, Nia Long, Elvis Nolasco, Kevin Phillips, and Shindell Edmonds. Film revolves around the life of rapper Roxanne Shanty. And um, um, basically, uh, she was, a, I mean, she, she really was a kind of a hip hop rap revolution fireball wrapped in this one young lady and the movie kind of goes through her the the goes through her life basically not her entire life she's still alive but um you know definitely goes through her youth and kind of how she had it all and 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 kind of what she did with it once she got there so really for me i i just kind of felt like I, I thought, I thought that the movie was good. I think the movie is well acted, and I think that the movie is important for the subject matter and kind of showing how someone as unique as Roxanne Shante was, and how and how much of an impact that she had on the genre in and of itself. My biggest problem with this film, and, and I mean, this is really all I have to say about the film. It's a very, very short review because it's a very decent movie, and I think that it's worth watching. I just really simply feel like, at, at the end of the day, I don't want to say that it was blasé. It's not bland, but it is very much by the numbers. Um, it, it's kind of like when you sit back and you've seen Ray, 
and you've seen other standard bioflicks uh, or bio biopics um you 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 know there's just kind of a certain way that they shoot everything that goes into the menagerie that is this film and it just doesn't seem to bring all that much new to the table it's still interesting it is still i think i think it still has aspects that are compelling and again, well acted, well shot, just kind of run of the mill, uh, which is saying something, especially since it's only clocks in at a hundred minutes. Um, you know, if you take out five to seven minutes for the credits, you're barely over an hour and a half. Um, and that's again why we give it a three point five out of five. So there you go, Tim. What do you got, sir? Well, first off, I just want to say I thought this movie was wonderfully written and performed, uh, especially mad props to Shantae Adams, who plays... Uh, Title character of Roxanne Shantae. Yeah, who plays Roxanne Shantae and her mother. And unfortunately, I don't have her mother's name right here because when I pull up IMDb and look up the movie, they show you everybody else in the movie... And not the lead freaking characters. So it's frustrating. And it was also nice to see Mahershala Ali in this film as well. Actually, it's Nia Long. Nia Long plays her mother. For a lot of these biopics, we've seen the tough love parent. But I thought Nia Long, for what she had to work with, did an excellent job. I thoroughly enjoyed this movie. I was certainly surprised. Michael Larnell, who directed the flick, uh, as well as a handful of other films, mainly shorts, did a wonderful job. However, it is definitely a briskly paced biopic, but it manages to be very entertaining and engaging. But because the movie is so brisk, it moves fairly quickly past the important character building that should take place in the second half of the film. You get an idea of the initial rise of Shantae, but you never really get to see her reach that peak. And granted, she doesn't really reach that peak until after the film, where the film ends. But as she grows as a character in this movie and as a person, you have to see her reach some sort of peak because she definitely goes on the downfall. If there's a roller coaster going on, you need to, you need to be right there with her. You need to understand her. Right off the bat, you know she's a nice young woman. You know, she means well. She's just trying to do what's right for her family. But yet, she's still a, a naive young woman due to especially where she lives in her upbringing. I love the interactions between her and her friends, between her and her mom, and uh, the character that Mahershala Ali plays. It's a wonderful character piece. I just think this movie easily could have been two hours and it still would have been very entertaining. It just needed that extra character and story work to really pack that punch. At the the movie does these great edits. For instance, I can't remember. I think she's having sex for the first time, and it's a close up of her face, and she's making a very orgasmic, you know, euphoric look on her face, and it cuts to the same shot of her face, but then in pain because she's having a child. She's giving birth. You really never see her as a mother. And you really never see how her husband, Mahershala Ali's character, interacts with her and the baby because it moves awfully quick, almost right afterwards, 
to suddenly he's beating her and she runs away from him and she has to figure out how she's going to get her baby back. I mean, all this happens within 15 minutes, it seems like, and it doesn't allow enough time to resonate with the audience. And to me, that's the only downfall of this film. I give it a four out of five. Thoroughly enjoyed it. It's on Netflix. Got to check it out. If I paid money to go see this at the theater, I would have walked out happy. Four for me. All right. Well, then that leaves us with The Twelfth Man. All right. 2017 Norwegian historical drama film directed by Harold Zwalt. Uh, I'm sorry, Zwart, and written by Peter Skavlin under the pseudonym Alex Bow. Uh, let's see here. So, uh, the main role of Jan Balsrud is played by Thomas Gulstad, who escapes from Germans in Rebenosoya, uh, via Lingen Ford and Mandalen to neutral Sweden in the spring of 1943. So, uh, again, this is based on a true story. Basically is another version of an Oscar nominated film. Uh, from 1957 called Nine Lives. And, and that's the thing is, for me, I think this is a beautifully, beautifully, beautifully shot film. Beautifully shot film. I, I, I don't necessarily think it's up there with Inaritu per se, but I still think it's a beautifully shot film. But it's also something that's easy to do when you're in the kind of country that they're in. And yet at the same time, I just don't feel like beyond how beautiful the film is and how poignant the film can be through its cinematography. Um, so I guess, you know, definite hats off to Gare Hartley Andre, uh, Andre, Andreasen. I just didn't feel like it really brought a whole lot new to the genre itself. I get that it's a true story. I get that it's harrowing. Um, but I just kind of felt like it was a little too long. And I felt that aside from the cinematography, there just wasn't a whole lot I hadn't seen before. That's not to say that it's not a good movie. That's not to say that if World War II movies aren't your thing or true life picks or things like that aren't your, aren't your bag that you won't enjoy the movie. And that's not to say that I wouldn't watch it again. I just kind of felt like it was a little long and it just didn't reach out to me and grab me the way that I had wanted it to. Um, but damn, is it pretty. Even in its brutality, when it's brutal, damn, is it pretty. So I give this one a three and a quarter as well, uh, all on the strength of its cinematography. That's all I got, man. Bring us home, Tim. Bring us home. I thoroughly enjoyed this movie despite its faults. Because the movie is not brutal for the sake of being violently entertaining. And I'm not saying that The Revenant itself is brutal and violent for the sake of being brutal and violent entertainment. But watching The Revenant, I still kind of felt I was watching a movie. Now, The Twelfth Man is by no means a perfect film. In fact, I don't know, maybe 70% of the first half of the movie is slow... And not much happens, but it's still good, but it's slow. Like, if you were watching it, if you were tired, you'd fall asleep a handful of times. Not because it's bad, because it takes a while to get going. The last half of the movie is tense and well-acted, and it, it's I think it's just epic cinema. I loved 
the whole last hour and, I don't know, what, 15, 10, 15 minutes of the movie. Fantastic. I enjoyed the the cat and mouse aspect between Jan and Jonathan Reese Meyers' Nazi character of Kurt Stage. Uh, it, it's just wonderful. I liked how the movie played around with that and its editing because it felt like they were being honest, an honest film that was trying to tell the story of this man, Jan Balsrud, played by Thomas Golstead, and the Norwegian town folk <laughs> who helped him reach the border of Sweden. And so it was kind of like an homage to them. Because you never really hear about, you know, the Norwegians and their World War II support. So the film is an epic, but a character epic. And I thought it succeeded beautifully. And this is easily Harold Zwart's best flick in his filmography, considering he made Pink Panther 2 and Agent Cody Banks. So I'm, I'm, I'm very happy to see him make his passion project, which I think this is his passion project. So it's wonderful to see films like this absolutely work because these filmmakers just really wanted to tell their story, you know, this particular type of story. It's expertly shot and well told. It's just, again... There's that stretch of the film. Though it's good, it's incredibly slow. I give this one 4.5 out of 5, despite its faults. I highly recommend you guys check it out. If you like World War II flicks, there's plenty of beautiful cinematography, action, suspense, drama. It does everything well without it being obvious that they were out to try to make a specific type of war movie if that makes any sense whatsoever. 4.5 out of 5, The 12th Man for me. I Hopefully you didn't pause for a trailer. I, I, I meant to listen out for that specifically because... I did. The entire film is in, in Norwegian. Oh, yeah, that's right. So I don't think we're going to be getting a trailer for uh, it. Ah! Okay, well, I'm sorry. Yes, I did. Kinda, I remember looking up the trailer because there was more than one 12th Man, and I wanted to make sure I had the right one. And so I was like, okay, this has got to be the one he's talking about. And then, I, so I watched the trailer, and I totally forgot that it was subtitled. <laughs> Oops. Oh, well. What are you going to do? That does bring us then to the end of the movies. Next week's movies are going to be Whitney, The Equalizer 2, and Skyscraper. So, uh, yeah, I think without further ado, that brings us down to the spiel, does it not, sir? Spiel on. Here's the first of the day, fellas. To old D.H. Lawrence. Indians. You know, I must have started off to Mardi Gras six or seven times. Never got further in the state line. Governor of Louisiana gave me this. Madam Tinker Toys, House of Blue Lights, corner of Bourbon and Toulouse, New Orleans, Louisiana. Now this is supposed to be the finest whorehouse in the South. These ain't no pork chops. These are U.S. Prime. <laughs> Sight, man. Oh, I'd like to get over there. 
How long, uh, how long did you boys say it was going to take you to get down there? Oh, about two or three days. Two or three days, is that right? Oh, I sure wish I was going with you. Yeah? You got a helmet? Oh. Oh, I've got a helmet. <laughs> All right, well, the music you've been listening to, as always, has been brought to us by our music partners, Cries of Solace. You can check them out at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com, both slash Cries of Solace. As for us, we are, of course, the SLS Cast, and you can find us at SLSCast.com. You can send us an email to the show at SLSCast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can follow me. This is Matt on Twitter at NitTwit12345. You can, of course, come aboard the Information Superhighway and track down Tim on Twitter if that's your heart's desire. As always, don't forget to subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio as well as track us down on the old SoundCloud or Google or wherever else you want to try and find us. If you'd like to support the show, you can always do that by heading on over to Patreon, which now leads me to say, that thanks to Neil Long, I get to say this. We're all in the service business. If you hire me to do a job, I expect everybody else to be where I am. A little bit of crazy is good. It keeps things balanced. Take care, cinephiles, and we'll talk at you again next week. Madam, perhaps we should be going. Oh, there we are, monsieur. Thank you so much. So nice to see you. And I hope very much we will see you again very soon. Au revoir, monsieur. Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. You can find us over at slscast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can send us an email to the show at slscast.com. And of course, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. Thanks again for listening.